Welcome to the podcast, People of the Book. I'm your host, Meryl Ain. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We chat with authors and storytellers in thought-provoking and intimate interviews, all with a Jewish twist. On today's program, I'm delighted to welcome Rabbi Dan Ornstein. Rabbi Ornstein is the rabbi of Congregation Ohav Shalom and a writer living with his family in Albany, New York, where he also teaches Judaic studies at the Hebrew Academy of the Capital District. Rabbi Ornstein is the author of Cain v. Abel, a Jewish courtroom drama published by the Jewish Publication Society in 2020. He blogs at the Times of Israel. He writes monthly for WAMC Northeast Public Radio, and he has contributed essays to the Jewish Forward, the Jerusalem Post, and the Lair House. Rabbi Ornstein has also published essays and poetry at the Journal of Conservative Judaism, the CCAR Journal of Reform Judaism, the Jewish Literary Review, and the Pine Hills Review. He and his wife, Marion Alexander, are the proud parents of Joseph, Shulamit, and Vered. So welcome, Rabbi Ornstein. I finished Cain v. Abel on Friday, and I have to admit, I've never read anything quite like it before. Everyone knows the story of Cain and Abel, but your book is chock full of many surprises, startling interpretations, and thought-provoking questions. To start, why don't you give us a brief summary of the book for those who haven't read it yet? Sure. Once again, thank you for having me on the show. Um, Cain v. Abel is an attempt to do uh, what I call contemporary midrash, right? A kind of um, kind of you know modern interpretation of the story that we all know or that we all think that we know in order to sort of see how it really kind of stands as a foundational story for um, living in uh, contemporary society. And so what I try to do in the book, using the frame of a murder investigation and sort of the sentencing phase of, uh, of uh, Kane's trial is to kind of bring uh, Kane's family, Cain, Abel, Adam, Eve, and all these other people sort of, you know, as it were around them, uh, kind of into a kind of stark relief to allow us to try to understand Cain with more nuance and to understand what it is that the story may be telling us uh, for today, um, what it means to live in families uh, at lots of different levels and uh, what it means to be uh, your brother's keeper. Great. So um, was there a, a particular motivation uh, that you inspired that inspired you to, to write this book about the world's first murder? Well, so, um, yeah, I like to tell people, Meryl, that the reason why I wrote the book was because of Bruce Springsteen. Mm-hmm. 
um, by which wow. I know that, um, you know, I've always been a very, very big Springsteen fan, and he uses a lot of uh, biblical imagery in his songs, particularly his earlier songs, and his iconic song, Adam Raised a Cain, which is really about his own twisted and tortured relationship with his own father, Douglas Springsteen, um, utilizes really powerful imagery to kind of, you know, talk about, as he puts it, uh, sort of the hard legacy handed down from generation to generation, from father to son. Um, so Springsteen certainly was an influence, certainly not the only influence. Um, I've always been fascinated by the story as a great foundational myth, you know, myth in the anthropological sense, not myth in the sense of, you know, it's a silly tale, um, you know, myth in the sense that it's, a, it's an important symbol story for us, and it teaches us very deep things about ourselves. Um, I think what, uh, what probably catalyzed my motivation to write the book was sitting in a courtroom uh, a number of years ago, I was waiting, um, you know, for jury selection, and uh, kind of, you know, looking at what was going on and the way in which um, everything both uh, rightly and wrongly was set up, you know, to try the individual who was going to be on trial. And, uh, you know, really thinking about, you know, what does it mean for us uh, as juries, as witnesses, both in actual court cases, but also in this great court case that we call human existence, what does it mean for us to fairly judge our fellow human beings and to see in both the best and the worst of our fellow human beings, um, ourselves reflected and mirrored? Well, that, that's fascinating, a combination of Bruce Springsteen and, and jury duty. Wow, I've, I love Bruce Springsteen, and I have served um, as a member of a jury, so, yeah, yeah. so I totally understand that. Um, I think you partially answered this, but I, I'd like to um, explore this a little more. Why did you choose um, to present this issue in the format you did? I think you you said you know you you sat um, as part of, of of jury selection, but it occurred to me as I was reading it, um, I totally understand why you wanted to write about this topic, but why did you uh, choose to uh, present it um, in the for format of a, of a courtroom drama? Well, courtroom drama um, is, um, how, however non-realistic a presentation of what goes on in courtrooms as it might be, whether on TV or in theater or whatever, courtroom drama is actually, you know, pretty exciting, you know, and uh, I think a lot of people are kind of drawn to that genre, and I think they're drawn to that sort of that uh, that scaffolding, that structure for presenting, you know, a great story. This, of course, is the great story of, of Cain and Abel. Um, I think also that as I sort of have read through the story over many, many years time, I've really come to see that there are elements of the story that are kind of like, um, not murder mystery elements, but they're really, as I talk about in the book, um, there are elements of the story that um, really lend themselves to reading it as a crime report, you know, God interrogating Cain. Cain basically trying to sort of exculpate himself and pretend that, you know, he has no responsibility for Abel. Um, God warning Cain, you know, before, you know, Cain commits a crime, you know, be very, very careful about what you're about to do. So that sort of insight into sort of those elements in the story that have always felt to me like kind of, you know, crime investigation and interrogation elements 
and just sort of you know the the general um, amenability, uh, sort of the openness of that genre to being used to kind of present a story like this, given the fact that what Kane commits is a crime. Um, right. I just felt that uh, that uh, it would work well, and uh, I hope that as readers you know read the book, they'll find that it works well. Yeah, interesting. Um, so the conventional way to understand Cain is that he's the embodiment of unrepentant, unrepentant evil. Uh, your book takes a more nuanced approach to Cain in line with how you read the biblical story and its later interpreters, which I also thought was fascinating, bringing in the later interpreters. Can you tell us more about this approach? And why you think it's important for how we understand human behavior and society today? Well, I think, um, you know, and, and again, I take a lot of my cue on this one uh, from those later interpreters, you know, uh, this idea that Cain is nothing more, you know, than a, you know, than a cold-blooded, you know, pathological killer. While it certainly has merit, and one could certainly interpret or infer interpretively from the story that that's exactly what and who he is, there's enough within, certainly within the rabbinic tradition, um, which talks about Cain's repentance, and which talks about Cain's, you know, um, discussions with God and everything else, you know, to lend, you know, to sort of, you know, that kind of, you know, lends to all of that, this other interpretation of Cain as a much more complex figure. And that's because of the fact that we are all much more complex figures. Are, are there, you know, people, you know, who commit horrible crimes simply because they're horrible people who are filled, you know, with anger and, you know, and hatred? Absolutely. We unfortunately see that all the time in the world. Um, and yet we also understand, as, you know, courts ideally should understand, as the justice system should understand, you know, that people's motivations for doing things are very complex. Um, yes, you do the crime, you have to do the time, you have to, you know, pay your debt to society, whatever that means. Um, because that's what it means to be a morally responsible individual within the society. By the same token, to be able to see Cain, again, as this kind of um, foundational uh, paradigm for the nuance and the complexity of who we are as human beings, both at our worst and at our best, both at our least redeemable and at our most potentially redeemable, I think is really important because if in fact the story is a mirror for us, and I argue that a lot in the book, then um, we have to see mirrored back to us, not simply the monstrous dimension of who Cain is, um, but the more complex dimension of who Cain is, which is the more complex dimension of who we are, um, human beings who uh, hopefully will do the right thing are not always going to do the right thing, but who still need to get second chances and need to be able to do tshuva, to repent, and to try to do better, um, and to kind of use that as the frame for a much more um, compassionate and, and, and frankly complex dialogue about what it means to be human. And so that's why I take sort of that approach in the book. And again, it isn't just me. Um, there are lots and lots of earlier sources that are trying to say that about Cain as well, that yes, he's done a horrible, terrible thing and he needs to pay for what he's done to his brother Abel. But you know, one of the things people seem to gloss over when they're reading this story is that 
unlike um, God's relationship with Abel, which has no dialogue in it whatsoever, right? The only time we hear from Abel, as it were, is when his blood cries out from the ground after his death. God speaks with Cain and stays in relationship with Cain before, during, and after the murder. They talk to each other. And so, you know, if God isn't willing to give up on Cain, um, maybe we shouldn't be so willing to give up on Cain as well. Interesting. So, so you're writing this um, book uh, to present a more um, nuanced approach, but also perhaps um, for people who might just um, dismiss the story as some sort of um, old-fashioned myth. Uh, in the early part of your book, you quote Mordechai Kaplan, Rabbi uh, Kaplan, who counseled us to take the Bible seriously without taking it literally. I mean, this is very, um, very interesting quote, and I'd like you to expand on it a little bit. How can this idea help us to read Cain and Abel and other great stories of religious tradition in a more meaningful way? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, I use this line with my congregants and with my middle school students at the day school all the time, you know, and it's people chuckle, right? Because they know the words before they even come out of my mouth, because I'm so insistent that we think about what it means to study these great stories. Um, I really think that um, that um, Rabbi Kaplan was, was right on. Um, these stories of the Torah um, it's not that there are no historical elements in the literature of the Tanakh, of, you know, of the Hebrew Bible. Um, it's just that many of these stories are not there to convey history or science to us. Um, and we get sort of caught up, we kind of get stuck on, you know, talking about the sort of the literalness of the stories. Right, literally, right. Literally false. And I think that that's, those are just sort of not the questions to be asked. The question isn't whether or not something is literally true, a story as early and sort of, com you know, that comprises so many sort of distinctively mythic elements. The, the purpose of a story like Cain and Abel is to talk about deeper truths. And I want people to focus on that. I, I don't care if there was an, a literal Cain and Abel anytime in human history. Um, because of the fact that we know that there are plenty of people who in their families and in their communal families and their global families and their national families have behaved uh, sort of, you know, on the basis of that paradigm, right? Um, Cain and Abel is the truth that is always moving through human relationships. That's the greater, deeper truth. That's what you want to take seriously without taking literally. And, and frankly, it worries me that, you know, we adopt um, this very simplistic format, sort of the simplistic perspective on these texts, where we say, it must be literally true, and therefore, I will defend its literal truth at all costs, even though I know that intellectually and morally I'm being dishonest, or because um, it presents itself, or it has to be taken as literal truth, and I can't buy it as literal truth, I'll simply reject it altogether and sort of consign it to the dustbin of history and literature. And I don't think either approach, both of which are sort of extreme polarized approaches, um, is helpful. So Dr. Kaplan's idea that you take the story seriously as a deeper truth or a series of deeper truths without worrying about its literal historicity, I think is really helpful and, and, and really imperative. Well, I, I agree. It is very, very helpful. Um, so Cain and Abel is generally read 
as a story about the origins and persistence of sibling rivalry uh, and its bloody potential. And I think that um, anybody who uh, lives in a family um, is familiar uh, with sibling rivalry. So I'd like you to address that, but I'd also like you uh, to tell us how you can read the story as a broader foundational narrative about our communal, national and global family. So, so first start with sibling rivalry in a family, and then let's go on to the, the broader narrative. Right. So in terms of being the foundational story about sibling rivalry uh, in, in families or sort of, you know, let's call them, you know, sort of family dysfunctions mm-hmm. and, um, and, their, and their discontents, so to speak, um, I think that the story speaks loudly and clearly. Uh, and again, the way that it speaks loudly and clearly, as do so many biblical stories, is it doesn't hit you over the head with what um, you should do. It simply presents you with a powerful story about the first siblings and the horrors that one sibling inflicts on the other um, for a lot of different reasons. You know, we could talk about Cain being motivated by many, many different kinds of things, um, none of them particularly healthy and none of them very good, um, which ultimately lead him, you know, to destroy his, you know, his innocent brother, Abel. Um, so in that respect, I think the story continues to have a tremendous amount to say, um, you know, to us um, uh, about what it means to live in a family. And I'll give you just one example of this, if I may. Um, one of the things that became pretty clear to me in reading the story um, is that when God, you know, when the text says that God paid no attention you know, to Cain and to his offering, but God paid attention. The word is vayisha uh, in the Hebrew, right? That when God attends to Abel and to Abel's sacrifice and not to Cain's, uh, to Cain and to Cain's sacrifice, as the text says, which of course is what sort of enrages Cain, that he doesn't get what he wants in terms of God's attention. The text never says that God rejected Cain. It says at that moment, God didn't pay attention to Cain. And so one of the things I try to emphasize in the story, uh, in the book, is that here you have a really interesting example of God as parents, right? Because God often is presented as a parent, and especially in these early stories, basically turning God's attention to whom? To the younger silent brother, right? Who for all intents and purposes seems to really have no power, no voice. And so God does what any good parent would do, which is God basically turns God's attention towards that child because that child needs the attention at that time. Cain doesn't get it, right? Cain is so caught up in, you know, sort of in being brother number one. And there are sort of, you know, uh, all sorts of, you know, clues, hints in the text that he has reason to feel that way because he's been taught that he should feel that way. And Cain is so enraged by the fact that God doesn't attend, you know, to, to Cain at that moment during the time of the sacrificial offerings, not because God, you know, doesn't want to have anything to do with Cain. We know that's not the case because God continues to talk to Cain, right? God is in in constant dialogue with Cain in much the same way that a parent, you know, of let's say an older sibling who's angry and frustrated at a younger sibling, you know, continues to talk to the child to say, you know, sometimes I have to attend to your, to your brother or to your sister and I'll get back to you. It's okay. Right. So I think that in terms of what the story has to tell us 
um, to sort of reflect upon in terms of our nuclear families, I think there's a tremendous amount going on there. And it does it with a tremendous amount of literary nuance, you know, in that God doesn't necessarily spell out for Cain, here's how you behave towards your brother, right? So, um, yeah, so I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering, though, um, so is this story really saying um, that in every family uh, there there has to be sibling rivalry because parents I mean even even God um, couldn't uh, satisfy the needs of both sons at the same time how does a, a human parent uh, do that uh, you know, give, give each child um, what that child needs at at a at a particular moment in time. So is 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 sibling rivalry and and parenting that misses the mark? Uh, is that just part of the human condition, or is there something we can do about that? Well, um, to say that it's part of the human condition is not to say that there's nothing that we can do about it. So um, I don't know that the story, that's a really good question. You know, is the text ultimately presenting to us in this very foundational way, um, almost with a kind of um, a kind of dark fait accompli, right? Which is that mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. is just the way that it is in families and we're done. Mm -hmm. um, the University of Chicago um, philosophy professor Leon Cass in his book on Genesis basically says that. He says that really what the story is saying is, um, is that, you know, this is essentially what it is. And that's why you need law. That's why you need structures, you know, and boundaries, because ultimately left to our own devices, this is what we will devolve into as families. But I'd like to believe that the, the story has um, a larger redemptive arc in terms of sibling rivalry and parenting. And, and the way that I think about that is to see the Cain and Abel story really as um, to use a biblical scholar's term, the Ur text, sort of like the sort of the foundational text for the rest of Genesis, which is a series of sibling rivalry stories and, and parental favoritism stories, which ultimately are resolved at the very end of Genesis with Joseph forgiving his brothers and um, Ephraim and Menashe being born um, with not even a hint uh, of, um, there's a hint there of kind of the beginnings of, um, you know, of, uh, at least of Jacob, you know, as the grandfather, you know, favoring one grandchild over the other. And yet we get no sense that Ephraim and Menashe are kind of, you know, have visited upon them the sins of their parents and their ancestors' past. So, so yeah. yes. So um, I guess the, so the answer is that uh, sibling rivalry and family dysfunction uh, will always exist, but we need to forgive one another. Well, it's forgiveness, and it's also about learning how to always try to stay one step ahead of the parenting game, which we all know as parents is really difficult. Um, so it's both a kind of dark and, and a light message, you know, that here is what it is. Um, it is sort of, you know, uh, the potential for the sibling rivalry is always there, if not the sibling rivalry itself. And it's then a matter of what we're going to do with it. And if forgiveness is a huge piece of what resolves and redeems, you know, that um, that rather dark dimension of, of family life. Wow. So do you want to also now tell us um, about this story as a broader foundational narrative about our communal, national and global families? 
So I think that the story is there in those early chapters of Genesis, not just to talk to us about <laughs> nuclear families, right? And not just to talk to us. I mean, clearly, uh, clearly, I think clearly, it's a, it's a story that sets us up again as this urtext, you know, to sort of understand what will happen in the more focused story of the origins of the people of Israel with all of the sibling rivalry, you know, between, you know, all of the different brothers, um, all the way through the end of the Joseph stories, that's all there. And yet I really believe that these stories are there again as mirrors for us to kind of take a look, not only at what we do or should not be doing or could be doing better in our families of origin, but it's really there for us to think about the global human family. Now, again, our ancestors in the Bible, did they have a sense of what, of, of sort of a global human family? I mean, there are texts in the early parts of the Bible that make it clear that they did. Um, they certainly knew that there were lots of people out there in the world. They may not have been able to get on the internet with them and talk to them, but they knew that they were there and they knew that they were all part of sort of God's larger sort of human family. Um, I truly believe that the story, as a, again, as a kind of contemporary midrash, can be read um, for us to kind of reflect upon and talk about what it means to live in these sort of ever-widening concentric circles of family. That means your could mean your national family, it could mean your communal family. Um, the extended family of sort of, you know, your, your, of your family of origin, and ultimately of the family of human beings, right? So the family of nations, let's call it that way. And that when, you know, when Cain asks, you know, his famous or perhaps infamous rhetorical question, am I my brother's keeper? Notice, of course, in the text that God never says to him, of course you are, right? You, the reader, have to be standing there sort of with the book yelling, screaming up and you know, jumping up and down and saying, uh, yeah, of course, Cain, of course you're your brother's keeper, right? And so that rhetorical question stays with us and has stayed with us, not just us in our origin, in, in our families of origin, but us as human beings in societies, in, in our larger global families, uh, precisely because of the fact that that's the question that we're always struggling to answer and to answer in the right way, which is, yeah, we're each other's brothers and sisters keepers. And okay, so, so, so what is that? I, what what does that look like though in 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 the world today, where we have um, shootings in in supermarkets mm -hmm. and anti-Semitism and, and racist and gender discrimination and a war in Ukraine. I mean, what, what does that look like? Well, first of all, I, and, and sort of, I'll sort of throw the disclaimer out here. You know, I don't think that the story, you know, is anytime, you know, soon, you know, if we all sat down in the world and everybody in the world read the Cain and Abel story, we would suddenly become, you know, a sort of a human race, you know, filled you know, with peace and love and no racism, <laughs> right. and racism and homophobia and everything else. No, no, we know that, right? But I think that the story persists through thousands of years of human history, precisely because of the fact that somewhere deep inside, we know that we are always drawn back to this story as a kind of skeletal foundation story that is, is haranguing us, that no matter what our feelings about each other might be, no matter what our hatreds are, no matter the stereotypes, and those are all bad things, what has to cut through all of that is the sense that there is a sense of common human fraternity, right? And, and right. it says it loud and clear. 
And it says it almost in a way that we could use as a kind of almost global human mantra, which is that, per which is to say that person over there is not a person from another ethnic group. That person over there isn't trying to replace you. That person over there isn't trying to take things from you, right? That person over there is your brother. Now, a lot of people will say, yeah, that's a nice sort of Sunday school fantasy, Rabbi. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, the divisions that exist among people exist for lots and lots of complex and dark reasons. And they're, they're correct. You know, one doesn't want to be too simplistic in asserting that, you know, the Cain and Abel story, uh, among many other things, um, you know, is sort of there to kind of, you know, give us, you know, finger snapping solutions to the worst, most intractable hatreds and problems of the day. But I think that it really does provide us with a very powerful mantra, almost a kind of walking base that's sort of, you know, the, a substratum that's always saying, take off all of those other blinders, the ethnic, the racial, the racialist, the racist, the sexist, take them all off and see the other human being who you're hating or discriminating against or, or whatever it is, or who you fear and see that person as your brother or as your sister. And that's a really powerful thing. So is it part of the dialogue? Can it be part of the dialogue for, you know, for communal and national and global healing? I think that it, you know, that it really can. I think there's other stuff going on in the story that's a little bit more subtle that talks about why we behave that way. Um, I can address that if you want, but I, you know, I think that first and foremost, when the story presents Cain's rhetorical question, it presents it and has presented it to us for millennia precisely to force any and all of us, no matter who we are, no matter what our feelings and fears and, you know, and, and misinterpretations of each other might happen to be, um, is to say to us, you've got to take a different perspective and see that person who you are in conflict with first and foremost, not only as a fellow human being, in a genetic sense, right, uh, or in a taxonomic right. sense, but in this deeply spiritual and moral sense as well, as your brother or sister. All right, I we're we're running out of time, but I would like you to, if you could address that briefly. Um, the so in more detail, this is what I think the story um, is trying to tell us, and I think that this actually has. Um, you know, sort of this has uh, sort of a political resonance, perhaps, without getting into into the details of politics. I have really become convinced that what you can infer from the story about Cain and Cain's motivations um, is that Cain really sees himself as this beleaguered victim, right? He really mm -hmm. comes sort of it really comes down to him believing that Abel, who's really just his innocent brother, who God attends to because God attends to him, and God has God's reasons, whether or not Cain likes that, um, Cain decides to displace the rage at his own parents and at God onto this easily scapegoated, you know, um, other member of his family, who it is then sort of a very easy step to take to destroy that person. And we see this all the time. We see the way in which um, sort of in which the demonization um, of another human being or of an entire, you know, group of human beings as other, right, allows us all too easily to just destroy them, to step on them, to take away their rights, ultimately to, 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 to kill them en masse. And it's that sort of wrongheaded and really poisonous sense 
of victimization, this almost anticipatory paranoia about how that other over there is going to take something from me, is going to victimize me. And, and, and we know all, all too well what that is doing to and has done to, you know, many, many people who buy into those kinds of um, inhumane, you know, mythologies, what it, what it does to them in terms of how they treat the person or the, or the group that they've decided, you know, to hate because they feel victimized. Okay, great. Um, who, who is your audience for this book? Everyone in the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you see it as a play that, that might be performed? If so, where? Yeah. So many, so it's interesting people, I have spoken with folks in the past, um, about turning the turning the story into a play, uh, because the courtroom scenes, right, those extended chapters are all basically sort of made up transcripts, right? right uh, that's right. sort of how I structure the book. And so I'm actually talking a family member of mine who's a, who's a theater person. We're mm -hmm. talking a little bit uh, this summer about sort of you know how one would sort of um, what's the word you know, sort of you know reconstruct this as a play. I would love at some point for someone who you know who does theater or is a playwright, you know, I'd love to be able to work with somebody to see how it could get turned into some kind of a dramatic presentation, whether as a reading um, or as actual drama because that's how I've structured the story. It's courtroom transcripts and, you know, transcripts are basically scripts. So I could see that happening, yeah. Well, it could be um, yeah, on Netflix or HBO or, <laughs> or, or, or would you see it as uh, performed in synagogues? Yeah, I think probably the more attainable and realistic goal is to see it in gods and churches. Listen, anybody listening to the podcast who wants to pick it up on Netflix, please let me know. Let me know. Um, but I think, yeah, I would love to see, I would love to see those transcripts, you know, turned into a series of presentations within breakdown discussions and workshops and group dialogue about what's going on in each one of those courtroom scenes. Um, so that you take sort of the the characters from the book um, and you kind of bring them to life sort of, you know, on a dramatic stage. Yeah, so synagogues and churches and mosques and civic associations, because the story ultimately, as I think I say at the beginning of the book, um, the story is for people of Jewish faith. It's for people of any faith. And ultimately, it's a great foundational story uh, of Western and world culture for people of no faith at all, right? For whom religion doesn't mean right, anything. Right, just who, who deal with the family issues. <laughs> family every, issues. Everybody in a family, yeah, which is yeah, everybody, right? Which is everybody, which is everybody, exactly, exactly. I mean, I'd like to believe that like so many of these stories of not only, you know, Jewish biblical literature, but of biblical literature in general, that those are stories that are there to ask, you know, as Rabbi Abraham Heschel of Blessed Memory said, you know, these are, the Bible is really about presenting us with great questions, not necessarily with just throwing answers at us. And so Cain asks the biggest of all questions, are we our brothers and sisters keepers? Um, and that's perennial, that's not going to go away. Right. And the, the answer to that is, yeah, so I have to ask you, I have to ask you this question. I, what's your opinion of the various way out? And I was trying to think of a word other than way out and I couldn't think of one, Midrashim yeah. you included, such as the theory that Adam 
wasn't Cain's father, but that right. his father was an angel. That was just one example. Why yep. did you include this and, and the others? Um, I included it because it's a great way to tell a story. Because <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it really sets up the family dysfunction from the very beginning. And, you know, that particular story from, I believe it's an eighth century Midrashic work, Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, um, you know, is difficult because there are really misogynistic elements in that story. And I think I address that in the book. Um, right. you know, so one has to figure out how to take stories like that and redeem them, you know, and say, okay, so what, what is it about Eve, you know, that really is, is going on here? Um, but, you know, so some of it is the entertainment value without a, without a doubt, right, because it's sort of it really, it kind of, um, it, it makes the story more complex to say that in fact, you know, you know, maybe, you know, Eve takes matters into her own hands and says, Adam, you know, I can't wait for you, you know, I've got to you know, I've got to start, you know, reproducing and putting people into the world because we don't live in Eden anymore. And because, you know, you're, you know, you're stuck, you know, in your own trauma. Um, so on the one hand, it's it's because I think it's good theater. Uh, on the other hand, I think it's because it it hopefully in complicating the story, right, going way beyond what we call the pshat, right, the simple contextual meaning of the story as presented to us in the Bible, what a story like that allows us perhaps to do is to think again with more nuance about just how complicated Cain's family of origin is. Does that justify his murdering his brother? No, but as with any set of mitigating you know, circumstances in a courtroom, right, in sort of the sentencing phase, maybe it allows us to think with a little bit more compassion about who Cain is and where he's coming from. He still has to take responsibility for what he's done, but given the mess of a family that the midrashim, right, the later midrashic statements, um, seem to um, seem to sort of impute to him, um, one can begin to understand better why Cain um, is motivated by all of this rage, because it's rage that he inherits from some very deep and dark places in his family. He still has to take responsibility, but you have to also see him with an element of uh, some nuanced, um, you know, compassion as well. Yeah, you, you mentioned the word misogynistic, and certainly um, this story of uh, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel is very misogynistic, as is um, really the, the entire uh, Bible, um, Anita DeMont um, told, told the um, story of um, Jacob and, and, and his family and, um, you know, reset it from the perspective of Dina in, in the mm -hmm. Red Tent. But, but um, what do we do about that? <laughs> what do we do about the misogyny? Yeah, I mean, how, can we can we retell the stories? Or I mean, women are are really, uh, in general, um, marginalized, um, you know, in the in the Bible. And certainly, I mean, Eve is um, is guilty. Uh, it, it started started all the trouble. So, um, yeah. is there any way um, we can? do something about that or if that's interpreted in a in a different way or um i think i think it was my teacher professor paula hyman of blessed memory who talked about the idea of seeing our texts and our traditions as as providing us with a usable past 
Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this is what, what Dr. Hyman meant, but what I've already, always taken away from that idea is that you look at all of these texts and first and foremost, you have to be honest. You have to say, look, all of this is who we are. Um, I just recently published a piece at the Jerusalem Post about teaching the story about Bruria, you know, the great, you know, uh, right. um, rabbinic wife, Bruria, who um, uh, in the hands of uh, a later commentator, in the hands of Rashi, um, dies a rather ignominious death after doing very ignominious things. And, and, and the story is horribly misogynistic in the way that Rashi retells the story. Um, but so first and foremost, what I believed is, is as, as with families, right, our family stories are not always pleasant. We know that, right? And of course, what is the Torah? What is the Tanakh? If not this complex, developing, roiling, ongoing story about this really complicated family, right? Known as the Jew, first the human family, and then of course the Jewish people is one subset of that. And so first what we do is we act with a sense of intellectual and moral honesty. And we say, all of this belongs to us, all of it. Um, you know, the light and the dark, the misogynistic and the non-misogynistic. And then what do we do? We try to create a usable past out of that by saying, okay, so how can we, first of all, discern the you know the aspects of this great story right from the first from the first letter on the page to the last letter on the page and everything that ensues from that that which is sort of um, not only endearing but enduring right that's really you know, sort of what endures for us as the great universal values sort of from that past that we continue to live with that continue to guide us and at the same time to look at the stuff that you know makes us really uncomfortable and to say okay given the fact that this is part of our families our jewish and human families past in terms of how we you know sort of read you know horrible things sort of you know into the lives of women without asking women right um you know what do we then do with that well we can say first of all on moral grounds um, we, re- we reject those attitudes, um, you know, summarily we reject them. We don't look at women and at non-Jews and at people who are, you know, so-called marginalized, right? We marginalize them. You know, we look at them as all part of this great sort of mirror of gods, which is, you know, which is always reflecting back to us the image of God, right? Which is right there in Genesis alongside everything else in Genesis. Right. And then what we try to do is with that usable past, I think we also try to, as I said before, we try to redeem those stories by saying, can we read the story in a different way, right? Can we do midrash on the story and then midrash on the midrash on the story? Um, And Mm -hmm. in struggling with those stories, do we redeem those stories by saying, okay, we reject what our ancestors believed about X, Y, Z, A prime, whatever it was, um, but maybe we can see the story in a, in a different way that helps us to understand things differently. Because what is a great story if not you know that which is so open to so much different conflicting interpretation that moves our understanding of the story and of ourselves and of our world um, towards something broader and more compassionate, more humane and, and more loving. And so I take those stories and I say, okay, how do I do that? You know, how do I do that? And I think that's a lot of what the contemporary Jewish religious project is and a lot of what the contemporary religious project is. Great, great. So um, what's what's next for you, Rabbi Ornstein? Do you, are you working on another book? Or I know you 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 write um, articles. Uh, you're right, very right. busy as we... <laughs> 
discussed yeah. in your in your uh, in your bio. Do you, do you plan on um, more writing projects? Yeah, I just recently published a long piece about the third century rabbi um, Yochanan Bar Nafcha, who's uh, famous, infamous. Uh, published him at um, at the CCAR uh, Journal of Reform Judaism. Um, and um, that was sort of an extended sort of um, kind of what we call a kind of intertextual view of who he is. I'm looking to do um, there. Yeah, there there is possibly a new book in the offing there. Um, there at the very end of Pirkei Avot of Ethics of the Sages, there is an interesting passage that talks about the 48 different steps for the acquisition of Torah. And every one of those, which is really intended for the ancient rabbinical student, I think has the potential for being written about, again, in a kind of usable and redemptive way to talk to any human being about the 48 steps towards wisdom. So I'm looking into writing a book about that, is how do we take those 48 steps to acquiring the, what we call Keter Torah, the crown of Torah, and universalizing each one of those steps to understand them in their broader context as being steps towards just wisdom and, um, you know, uh, gracious humanity for, you know, any person and for all people. So that's probably my next project. Uh, we'll see how that goes, you know. Great. Is there anything uh, you'd like to add? Um, you know, my writing of Cain v. Abel was really very much... You know, mm. Something I want to add because you know, because I know people who are writers and potential writers listen to your podcast. Um, you know, I encourage writers a lot, Jewish and non-Jewish. I just helped a, a non-Jewish friend of mine um, with a memoir that he's writing, um, which hopefully will will uh, become a significant piece of work. And I really love to encourage writers, Meryl, and um, because I think that writing for me is very much a religious and a spiritual act. You know, it's part of sort of mm -hmm. just my spiritual makeup. But I think that encouraging people to to take what's inside of them and you know good bad or otherwise to write and to write and to write because ultimately you know who are we if not you know storytellers we're all storytellers not everybody wants to formally write but um everyone should be telling their story because it's only in telling our stories no matter who we are and in hearing each other's stories that we really come to understand each other in a much, much deeper, much more loving way um, so that, you know, we break the cycle of Cain v. Abel by being able to hear each other's stories rather than simply tell ourselves stories about uh, the other who we don't know at all. We want to turn the other into the brother. And the way we do that is by listening to people's stories. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Rabbi Dan Ornstein. The book is Cain v. Abel. I also want to thank our executive producer, Pam Stack. People of the Book is a copyrighted presentation of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Please visit us and like our Facebook page, People of the Book. I'm your host, Meryl Ain. For more information about my books and writing, visit me at merylain.com. Until next time, please join us on Facebook at Jews Love to Read and read a good book.